0: The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us transformation to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me Saul David and Patrick Bishop. After the excitement of the past two weeks, particularly the announcement that the West is sending main battle tanks to Ukraine, the news this week is lower key but still significant. It comes both from the battlefield, where Russia is making small but potentially important gains in multiple locations along the front line, and also from Kyiv and Western capitals, where officials are hinting at the possibility of NATO countries sending fighter jets and long-range missiles to Ukraine.
2: Well, the question of Russian advances and the impact this is having on Ukrainian morale is addressed by our guest and friend of the podcast, Julius Strauss, this week. The response to Julius's appearance on the podcast last week was so enthusiastic that we've invited him back again for a second week running to give us another dramatic account of life on the front line this time near Orikiv in the Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, so Julius has been down there. He also assesses the mood in Kiev, where he is now, and he offers some fascinating insights on Putin and what might lie ahead.
0: But first, let's talk about those Russian advances, Patrick. Now, according to the respected Washington, D.C. think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, the Russians have recently made small gains in a number of places, around Bakhmut, as we've been talking for many weeks, uh, and they've also occupied the settlement of Vodyane near Donetsk, Mikhilsky in the Zaporizhia Oblast, and are also putting pressure on Vulodar and Orikhiv, uh, where Julius was reporting from. Also, both of those are in the Zaporizhia Oblast. So, what, Patrick, do you think is going on? Is this a cunning Russian plan? Are they trying to keep the Ukrainians off balance before launching their much anticipated spring offensive? Or is this just a question of throwing men at the problem in a scattergun approach? in the hope they'll get a morale-boosting victory somewhere.
2: Well, there seems to have been a little shift in the military situation, doesn't there, around Bakhmut. Um, We're hearing that before the charge was being led by Wagner personnel, but uh, it seems that they're being replaced by conventional troops from the regular army, uh, the idea being that they're looking forward to taking Bakhmut fairly soon. And, of course, the state wants to take the credit for that rather than a private military contractor. Uh, you Evgeny Prigozhin, who's also got political ambitions. And so obviously, you know, that is not uh, something that uh, Putin wants to see him getting the credit for. That could change things a bit, couldn't it? I think, you know, before we heard from indeed from Julius last week that Wagner were complaining that they weren't getting the support that they wanted from the uh, regular army, particularly it's artillery support. So that may be about to change. If they're now putting in regular troops, they will be getting you know, a higher level of of artillery support. But on the other hand, Wagner tactics were very costly, but did actually bring some results. And and we heard last week about how profligate they were with men's lives. You know, many of them, of course, are, are convicts uh, from Russian jails. Uh, so now the The Russian conventional commanders have taken over. Okay, they'll have the improved support, but they can't really afford to throw away lives with the same abandon as the Wagner people did. Um, You know, it looks like the Russians have lost one hundred thousand dead minimum. We've spoken about this before, Saul. But okay, you know, there there is a sort of Russian tradition of doing this, but there there are political consequences. As again, we've mentioned in Afghanistan, this was a big contributory factor to the failure of the war there. So they've got to be a, a bit more cautious plus they're gearing up for this big offensive so they've got a husband there as resources but just sorry i'm being rather long-winded here but to answer your question i think what they're trying to do there the russians is to pull the ukrainians in um try and bleed out the best ukrainian units in the defense of Bakhmut prior to their big push but the russian the sorry the ukrainians seem to have understood that don't you think so i mean they seem to me to be playing quite uh, an intelligent defense here uh, in and around Bakhmut.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And, and possibly elsewhere. I mean, it, it's possible. We we don't know for sure, but it's possible that they're deliberately conceding some ground in the hope that it will convince Western governments to supply ever more powerful weapons, uh, including, as I mentioned at the top, fighter jets and long-range missiles. If they are playing that clever game, it, it's working to a certain extent. Are they actually trying to frighten the West into conceding um, more kit? Well, President Biden has just ruled out sending F-16s to Ukraine. But President Macron of France may still commit French fighter jets. Poland's also expressed the willingness to give modern jets, as of other countries. And meanwhile, John Finer, the US Deputy National Security Advisor, has said, we have not ruled out in or out any specific military systems. Um, but Macron, is fascinating, isn't it, Patrick? I mean, you've got a bit more of a sense of the French Uh, Side than I have. You've spent a bit of time living in that country. He seems to be playing a bit of a double game here, doesn't he? One minute he's cozying up to Putin, the next he's backing Zelensky with military kit. What do you think he's up to?
2: Well, he's all over the place, really, isn't he? I mean, just before Christmas, he was saying that Russia needed security guarantees in any peace settlement. And this was um, much condemned. There was one rather kind of brilliant tweet by Tuman Hendrik, who is the former president of Estonia, and he very succinctly tweeted just three letters FFS, which I think sort of sums it up. I think what's going on here is that when I've seen Macron at fairly close quarters living in Paris for several years, just after he took over as president, um, I remember very clearly the um, very carefully choreographed ceremony when he, he won the presidential election in 2016. And uh, it consisted of him uh, walking alone uh, across the courtyard of the Louvre with this sort of, you know, doomy music uh, playing this long, lone walk uh, as if he's got the weight, not just of France, but of the whole world on his shoulders. So from the beginning, he saw himself as a man of destiny. And when the war began, you recall how he tried to intervene to save the day with this sort of personal diplomacy to Putin um calling up Putin, but the Kremlin switchboard was keeping him on hold, and it turned out that Vlad wasn't in a listening mood. But he still, I think, hankers after the role of a sort of diplomatic Superman who can swoop in, save the day, under the illusion that this is a situation that can be resolved by conventional power brokering. I, I just don't think it can, but it does sort of play to an an old French theme, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen um, this before. You'll recall de Gaulle's behavior in the Second World War, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, de Gaulle got on notoriously badly with Roosevelt, I mean, and and felt that Roosevelt really didn't respect him, didn't have much time for him. Of course, we're talking about the very complicated period where you had effectively two governments of France, Patrick. This is, of course, after the uh, German invasion in 1940, where you have the Vichy regime, which everyone sort of has to keep on side to a certain extent, because Vichy is technically neutral. But of course, it's dominated by Germany, uh, which at the same time is occupying a big chunk of France, and at the same time, de Gaulle, of course, is claiming to speak for France, effectively in exile. So it was very complicated, and de Gaulle felt that he really didn't get much respect from Roosevelt. And I wonder if this pl- this is playing in the, into a, you know a fascinating bit of news we've just heard that. De Gaulle's grandson has recently uh, come out with what I consider to be an outrageous statement, uh, Patrick, and that's the, that the U.S. was responsible for the Ukraine war and that Russia was a victim. The French, he said, are paying a heavy price for a war provoked by the U.S. to turn Europe into a vassal.
2: Yeah, this isn't really an un- particularly uncommon view in, in France. I've been reading some of the comments in the Figaro and uh, you know, there, there seems to be a school of thought that says that that we really did sort of bring this on by sort of NATO expansion, etc. But again, it's part of this, you know, historical sense that France is separate; it can never really throw its weight behind, particularly America, uh, and so it's always got to be seen to have its own sort of independent policy. But I think that's all falling apart. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to bring up, Saul, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, is the way that you know, once again, the Franco-German partnership which is meant to really drive all aspects of europe and particularly you know sort of foreign policy they've been faced with two big crises in in recent times the first one, of course was the yugoslav war in their backyard they failed to do anything about that the the u.s had to step in and save the day now the same things happened here on a much bigger scale uh, with ukraine and once again they failed the test but and here's the interesting point Uh, others have risen to the challenge, particularly in the East. So we've seen Poland and the Baltics in particular taking the initiative, showing the resolve, giving the the Ukrainians the weapons they need, and also putting a very courageous stance vis-a-vis Russia, which is right uh, across their frontiers. So it seems to me we might here be looking at uh, a kind of shift in power inside the EU with the kind of centre of gravity moving eastwards. Do you think there's anything in that?
0: Yeah, I do think there's something in that. And what, what's also fascinating is that those powers you talk about, the Baltics, but also we're including now the Nordics who are looking to uh, join NATO, are spending a lot of money on their military. I mean, Poland in particular has got a really effective military. So what you're getting a sort of shift not only a potential political shift, but also a military shift to the east. And, and this, of course, is a problem for Russia because these guys, as you say, are on their border. But it's not a coincidence that that's, it's happening now because they see an existential threat um, represented by Russia in a way that Germany, frankly, and France still do not. Now, I mentioned before that Biden has said no to jets going to uh, Ukraine. But we're now hearing that from Reuters that the US government is about to announce a really significant two billion military aid package, which includes something we've mentioned before, a game changing weapon called the ground launch small diameter bomb or GLSDB, where we are big favorites of acronyms on this program, aren't we, Patrick? <laughs> that's and not that's a very significant... good one, is it? They should be able to be boiled <laughs> down into
2: some handy sort of little thing. But no, yeah, that's a pretty, that's a mouthful, isn't it?
0: It doesn't roll off the tongue like High Mars, but it could be as significant. Why? Because it has a range of 94 miles, 150 kilometers, which is significantly further than the High Mars. It's GPS guided can defeat electronic jamming and is usable in all weather conditions. It also, and here's the interesting bit, has small folding wings that allow it to glide more than 100 kilometres if dropped from an aircraft and hit targets as small as three feet. That's one metre in diameter. Wow. It's key use, of course, Patrick. It's going to be against the ammunition depots, command centres and troop concentrations that the Russians have moved back beyond the range of HIMARS.
2: Well, it'd be nice if it got there sooner rather than later. This is always the problem with what's going on now, isn't it? Um, In that all this stuff sounds great. But uh, if the Russians do go on the offensive in what the Ukrainians are saying, it could be a couple of weeks uh, and certainly within a couple of months. uh, You really need this stuff to be there disrupting the build-up, disrupting the initial sort of manoeuvre if it's going to be at its most effective. Now, we were talking about... What's going to happen next? As we always do, sort of. But uh, have you had time to kind of game how you think things might go when the the uh, long-awaited big pushes on both sides uh, actually kick off?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we <laughs> we're, you're always asking for trouble if you start to predict what's going to happen. But I think we, you know, we're, we're bound to do that, aren't we? And I have been thinking about it. And, and frankly, the most logical thing for the Ukrainians to do, which fits into my theory that they are sort of conceding a little bit of ground almost deliberately, is to draw the Russians onto them. I mean, we're almost going back a year when uh, the initial attacks came in. I think if there is going to be a large uh, Russian offensive, and it it, it looks increasingly likely uh, for lots of different reasons, and not the least of which is that uh, Russia's got to do something, it needs a victory, then uh, the Ukrainians would be very sensible to allow that attack to come onto them, uh, and then hammer it when it does. We know that a lot of the Uh, The the grunts that are going to make up the bulk of any attacking force. Uh, Yes, they may be in the uh, regular Russian army, but they're going to be conscripts and they're not going to be effectively trained. So I would bring the Russians, let the Russians attack uh, and then hit them when they do, when their lines of communication uh, and their supply lines are extended.
2: And then counterattack
0: with these new tanks Exactly. And then you use the tanks and then you use these position guided weapons. I mean, of course, you know, it's a double game. Do you use them to disrupt or do you let the Russians come and then knock them out? Honestly, I think that that will be in the back of the Ukrainians' minds. But we'll see. Um, As we're going to hear from Julius, uh, he's not quite so optimistic that the uh, Ukrainians have got a cunning plan.
2: Yeah, it's it's good to sound those cautionary notes. Um, I agree with you. I think that's that would be the sensible thing to do to let them come on. Of course, there are some places where you can do that, and other places where you can't. So you can't do that around Kherson, where you've actually got you know population, uh, large population in the city still. But you probably you could do it around Bakhmut. And one thing the Ukrainians have proved adept at is they've shown their ability to maneuver in a way that the Russians haven't. And the other thing that strikes me is that you know what, the, what what's the Russians' actual objective? What do they do? Do they just keep you know pushing? westward and then think, okay, we've gone far enough, we can say that we've, you know, re-liberated what's really Russian territory and call that a victory. Yeah, maybe, but that's not going to end the war for them, and you will still be in this uh, you know, highly sort of disrupted state. On that point, actually, um, in the past we often used to talk about sanctions, how they were going to kick in at some point and undermine Putin at home. That doesn't seem to be happening, does it, in the medium term anyway, from this IMF report that came out yesterday, it looks like the Russians are actually doing rather better than we are here in Britain uh, on the economic front. And their prediction is that the uh, economy is actually going to grow a bit next year. Now, this is all down basically to the fact they found new markets for their oil and gas. So in the long term, things aren't going to be great. They have a massive brain drain. The economy is completely dependent still on energy so that they can sort of tick along. But it seems that that particular threat is not going to be a decisive one anytime soon. So I suppose, yeah, I mean, digging in for a long, grim stalemate must be sort of factored into their plans, which isn't good for for Ukraine and, and the West. But um, yeah, I think what the Ukrainians and, and the West definitely are planning for and hoping for is a massive, decisive uh, victory in a very hot spring and and early summer.
0: Yeah, and just on the sanctions thing, I mean, you're right, of course, and the IMF are are suggesting that uh, Russia's economy is not going to contract this year. It's going to grow slightly. But in what way? I mean, you know, it can bring in a lot of money because it's selling its oil, but what it can't get, a lot of these sophisticated components that it needs uh, to run a lot of its weapons. So it's sort of patching things together. And as its armaments get increasingly less sophisticated, they're going to have less effect, frankly. And of course, the opposite, as we've mentioned many times before, is happening as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, particularly with these new guided bombs, as I've just been talking about now, there was a fascinating clip from Boris Johnson this week in which he uh, and this was in a BBC documentary actually about about the lead up to war in which Boris Johnson was interviewed and claimed that he had a conversation with Putin before the invasion and when he was actually threatened by Putin uh, which sounds entirely credible to me I mean apparently what Putin said to him and this is when they were talking about you know the, the potential consequences if uh, Russia invaded he said Boris I don't want to hurt you but with a missile, it would only take a minute. Does that sound a likely comment to have come from Putin, do you think, Patrick?
2: Uh, well, it's, it's plausible it's come from Putin. But unfortunately, the story is told by Boris Johnson, who I know <laughs> of old. I used to be his boss when I was at the Telegraph. Uh, he was in Brussels, and I often used to uh, have to deal with him there. Also, I was Paris, when I was Paris correspondent, we both covered the um, was it 2003 Maastricht Agreement referendum. And so I've seen him up close as a journalist and I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. So um, I'm afraid that you know, if you're going to choose between great liars of the world, there's not much in it between Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin. So great story, but uh, not sure how true it is. Okay, that's enough from us. Now we're going to hear again from my old friend Julius Strauss, former Daily Telegraph bureau chief in Moscow, who's reported on many wars across the globe Uh, And this is what he told us about his recent trip to Orykiv in the Zaporizhia Oblast. Julius, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much for for joining us again. Uh, We understand you've been on your travels again in the east. Can you tell us uh, what you saw there and what you've been hearing?
1: Yeah, so uh, the week before when we spoke, Patrick, I'd mostly been in the Donbass, around the area, the general area of Bakhmut. What I decided to do this week was go a little bit further south. There had been a reported, significant reported Russian attack on a place called Orychiv, which is in the Zaporozhia, Zaporizhia, in Ukrainian area. So I traveled with a colleague down to Zaporizhia, and yeah, we drove down to the frontline town of uh, Arekiv and uh, it was quite an eventful drive down there. And um, it was a little bit like Yar, the place I went to last week in that there's intermittent, significant fire coming in. But it is intermittent. It's not continuous. I've also been in Kiev for the last uh, two or three days trying to sort of wrap up my thoughts and, and figure out what's going on here.
2: So what did you see around Zaporizhia?
1: Well, we went to a, first of all, this little town, Arehiv, medium-sized town, I guess, Arehiv. They have a sort of council in exile. It was quite interesting in a way. So it's a room in a building in Zaporizhia where the entire council sits with about 12 computers, and they run the town of Arehiv remotely because in Arehiv, there's no consistent power. So they have this sort of satellite administration. So um, I went with my colleague there. We talked to them about the situation in Arehiv, and we managed to arranged to go in the next day to Arehiv with an aid convoy. I mean, you will have seen plenty of these things in your time, Patrick. You know, I imagine the sort of six large trucks um, with flashing lights and lots of uh, logos and maybe a police escort. Well, what it actually was, was a beaten up old battered British ambulance that they managed to get from somewhere that was going, but not very well. And our entire cargo was about 35 planks and a wheelchair which sounds kind of, you know, vaguely it sounds kind of vaguely, I don't know, pathetic maybe, but but actually what you realize when you're running in and out of these places is that there's this massive support network for these frontline towns and it's mostly done in this unglamorous way by volunteers who take these dangerous roads. So that's what we did is we piled into the British ambulance and we set off it's about an hour down the road to and as you get closer, the, 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 you know, there are less and less people, more and more military. Things get more and more tense. The drivers at one point stopped to put on their flak jackets. And it was at that point that, w- that we saw this most, um, almost a surreal thing, which was a, we saw a, a contrail coming from the east. And initially, you know, as a sort of Westerner, you think, oh, it's a contrail, it's a plane. And then you think, well, hang on a minute. It's not that simple in Ukraine. There are no passenger planes flying. Uh, it's got to be something military and the contrail came close. It was very high and sort of in the distance. And then as we watched it, another contrail came from the west. And the first contrail did a very, very sharp 180 degree turn, which made us realize it must be an airplane. There's no way a missile is going to return to sender, as it were. So this, the plane did a very, very sharp turn. And then you slowly watched the two contrails come together. And the contrail of the missile caught the plane. It caught up with the plane, and you saw both contrails disappear. And then this sort of billowing, not not exactly a billowing of smoke, but a sort of a a billowing white contrail in its place. And you realize that what had happened is the plane had just been shot down by a Ukrainian missile. And for a few seconds, we just sort of stood there in disbelief that this is what it actually looks like from the ground at a distance. Um, So that was just, uh, it gave us a little insight a tiny insight really into what's happening above, what's happening up in the air as well.
2: Can you tell us what you think the Russians are actually up to at the moment? I mean, from a distance, it seems a bit pointless, This constant battering away. Is there any kind of military purpose to it, do you think?
1: I think there is a military purpose. And I think actually, if you talk to the Ukrainians, they're a bit more worried than they sometimes let on. Because what seems to be happening is that everybody agrees that there's some kind of spring offensive coming from the Russians and perhaps from the Ukrainians as well and they think it's going to be in february perhaps march and so both sides are kind of positioning for that offensive but what the russians are doing in the meantime is they're not allowing the ukrainians to set up properly they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing they're still pushing around bakhmut they were pushing in this little place i just mentioned Arikiv, uh, and now They're pushing hard in a place called Vukladar, which is sort of on a it's sort of between the Zaporizhia and the Donetsk front. And what this is doing is it's forcing the Ukrainians to fight continuously and not really giving them any breathing space, not giving them time to reposition properly, not giving them time to sort of sharpen their knife for the next fight. And this seems to be the tactic. It's it's you know, every day it's somewhere else, but it's significant. And there's also a sense that you know, now that we know that the tanks are coming, that the Russians have a sort of a window between now and when those tanks become fully deployed. Although, of course, we don't know exactly what difference the tanks are going to make until they are deployed. But there's this sense of a window to so the Russians are sort of stabbing and jabbing and stabbing and jabbing at different points on the front right now. So that when the push does come, the Ukrainians are not going to be sharp. Then they're going to be off balance and they're going to be stretched and morale is not going to be what it could be. They're not allowing them to breathe, basically, in the run-up to this expected offensive. That's the general feeling here.
2: You've been back in Kiev and obviously had your rear to the ground there. You know, The, the news that uh, the tanks were were going was greeted over here as being a huge event, a huge game-changer, which at first sight it, it looks like. Is that how it's being regarded there?
1: Um there's a whole combination of different viewpoints here, or the whole, a whole variety of different viewpoints here. I think it's definitely good news. It's definitely good news. I mean, the idea that hundreds of Western tanks are going to turn up. But it's a little bit like the discussion ahead of the HIMARS. You know, we don't actually know how important it's going to be. Now, I think the HIMARS turned out to be very important. Um, we don't know if the tanks are going to have the same effect. You are more of a military expert than I am, Patrick, but you know on the offensive tanks would certainly seem to be extremely valuable in a defensive role. they obviously have some value, but that is sort of less known it's a less known capacity. Um, the other problem is going to be that given that the Russians are attacking on so many different points along this long front line it's difficult to know how this sort of you know how how the backup systems are going to work how the how things are actually going to work in the field so yes people are happy people are very happy that the tanks thing has moved does it mean that they're optimistic of a sort of short-term victory against russia no I, i definitely don't think so
2: what about the timing i mean it would seem that the russians really have to go sooner rather than later the longer they wait the more effect these tanks are going to have. Uh, crews trained up, supply lines properly in place, all the rest of it. So in a way that kind of gives Ukraine the advantage, doesn't it?
1: Perhaps. It's very difficult to measure how exhausted the Ukrainian military is. Um, Morale is high, but there's been a lot of fighting. A lot of soldiers are tired. A lot of soldiers have been killed. And we don't, Really have a good sense because every time you get a bit of this it's it's you know it's one small data point on a on a very long front line it's also difficult to measure how effective the new Russian forces are going to be when they really start pushing. I think what we're seeing at the moment is you know after that not euphoria but that sort of idea that the Russians would get tired the Russians would run out of equipment the Russians would eventually stall is You're getting a slightly different sense now, and it's not quite as optimistic on the Ukrainian side, which is that the Russians really are in it for the long haul, and they're just going to keep going. And so we've talked about this for a long time, this war of attrition, but it really does seem to be coming that. And the Russians are still taking land. I mean, they've just taken tiny, tiny bits, but they've just taken another pocket North of Bakhmut, they're taking a the tiny bit down by Arizhiv. They're they're chipping away. It looks like they might take the town of Vukladar, although who knows? Let's see how that works out. They're chipping away at bits of land. Um, so you certainly don't get the sense of any kind of Ukrainian breakthrough at the moment of some kind of you, you know imminent Ukrainian success at the moment, barring something very unexpected politically in Moscow. What will happen in the next? few weeks. I think that given the the two timings that we're looking at, i.e. on the Russian side, you know, the expected spring offensive and on the Ukrainian side, the deployment of these tanks, I think the Russians probably do have a window between the two. I mean, the Russians could be ready to roll pretty soon within a couple of weeks is, is what I'm sensing. And I think it's going to take the Ukrainians longer to get those tanks into an operational position, certainly most of them.
0: Well, that's all very revealing, isn't it? Do join us in part two when we'll hear more from Julius and answer listeners' questions. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until. That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand.
2: Wait, did that
0: agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now.
1: Canva.com, designed for work.
0: At Evernorth Health Services,
1: we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our
0: power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible
1: complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder.
2: Welcome back. We're now going to hear the second part of our interview with Julia Strauss. Is the relative lack of success on the battlefield on the Ukrainian side causing any kind of political problems at the moment in Kyiv?
1: You know, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, I've spoken to many, many people, and it's difficult to hear a bad word against Zelensky. I think the Ukrainians I've spoken to have all said the same thing. They said, look, we're very lucky to have this man at this time. And when you look back at previous Ukrainian leaders, you can kind of see why. I mean, they're a pretty motley bunch going back to 1990. You know, all of them sort of caught up in various corruption scandals or compromised or whatever it happens to be, um, or just ineffective. So in that sense, I think there's a feeling amongst Ukrainians that we really are lucky to have this man Zelensky. Things are about as good as they can be, but we're up against a really serious foe who does not have a track record of backing down. So it doesn't mean we're going to win. It just means that this guy will give us our best shot. Now, there has been this big corruption. It's not quite a corruption scandal, but there was a big sweep a few days ago where Zelensky fired a lot of people. He fired several of the governors of the frontline provinces. He fired several deputy ministers. It's very difficult to know what's going on. It's very difficult. You know, the message is extremely controlled. Interestingly, the firings were broadly greeted as a sign that ukraine is becoming less corrupt or at least addressing its corruption most of the media coverage that i saw said well you know well done zelensky finally you're doing something about corruption um but whether there's something else going on behind that is is very difficult to say
2: now this is a big ask julius uh, but you're in a very privileged position of knowing both countries well can you give us some idea of, from your own personal view of how you see this all playing out
1: gosh that is a big ask um Well, first of all, take the Russian side. We don't know what is happening in the Kremlin. We just, you know, I I covered Moscow for four years at a time when it was much, much looser than it is now. And even then we didn't know anything about what was happening behind the walls of the Kremlin. It was all just speculation. How safe is Putin's position? How fed up are the Russian hardliners with him? I don't think the liberals really come into this in Moscow. I think it's between Putin and the hardliners. How effective a war manager do they think he has been? I think those are the crucial question. Oh, that's one crucial question. And then the other one is, of course, if they decide that they're not happy with him, is there any mechanism or means or ability to change him, remove him? If we assume that Putin is not going anywhere for a minute, it's a fairly big assumption, but let's let's make it let's make it right now and say for the next couple of years he's not going anywhere. Knowing what I know about Putin, he is just going to double down and double down and double down. There is no sense at all that he is ready to either give in or make some kind of painful compromise. Kremlinology is notoriously, you know, it makes fools of all of us. Uh, the people who knew the most in in sort of The late 1980s said the Soviet Union would never fall. It's a very difficult business. But my sense is the leopard is not going to change its spots at this point. Putin either prevails in some sense or he goes down with this war. Looking at it from the Ukrainian side, uh, the Ukrainians have proved much, much tougher than anybody would have ever thought. We're coming up to the first anniversary of this war and and they're much, much tougher than anybody would have ever thought. They're stubborn. They're brave. they're, They're fighting hard. How much can that be sustained? We don't know what the casualty rates are. If the casualty rates are genuinely, you know, as I think Millie said, uh, they're genuinely around 100,000 on each side, that's a huge toll on the Ukrainians. I mean, that's hundreds of thousands of people injured. It's very difficult to get a sense because, of course, everybody you talk to can only talk about their minute little piece of experience on the front line of Bachmuth or wherever it happens to be. It's very difficult to get a broader sense of what's going on. So what would my predictions be? Big picture, it's difficult to see an early end to this war without the change in Moscow. I wouldn't really be able to go further than that, I don't think.
2: That's a grim thought. Uh, what are you up to next? I understand you're uh, you're heading for the mountains before a, well, a kind of related but very fascinating aspect of your work.
1: Yes, I had, um, and we spoke last week, Patrick, and I'd been out with the volunteers collecting Russian and Ukrainian bodies. There was a postscript to that, which was very sad, which was one of the young men I was with, a man called Dennis, who was 21 years old, ran over a mine a few days later and was killed. And, you know, one of the things you realize when you spend time here is there's a lot of people being killed and there's a massive amount of people being injured and wounded. Um, And so I did a, a program in Canada two years ago for physically and mentally wounded British and Canadian servicemen, and so I have a plan this year to do the same for Ukrainians. and And the plan is basically to take some, uh, take half a dozen Ukrainians to my lodge in Canada, to Wild Bear Lodge, and to give them ten days of training in terms of wilderness skills, practical skills, and that sort of thing, and then bring them back to Ukraine as Wilderness guides, mountain guides in their sort of post-soldier life and possibly sort of environmental protection officers, that sort of thing in the Carpathians in Western Ukraine. I mean, full disclosure here, I have one other aspiration, which is that there are 400 grizzly bears or brown bears left in Ukraine um, and they're not very well protected. And uh, one of my big things in Canada is trying to protect bears. I'd like to I'd like this to be part of protecting bears in Ukraine as well. So tomorrow I'm meeting a Ukrainian partner who has worked a lot with wounded soldiers with prosthetics and also with PTSD and recovery and vocational training. And we're putting together a program. We've collected about 65 percent of the money we need to do the program this year. So I'm still out to try and collect a bit of cash for that and also put together the operational side. But I'm optimistic it will happen this autumn.
2: Well, that sounds like a brilliant project. Well done for doing it, Julius. And uh, if you give us the details, we'll put it uh, on the site and maybe people might feel like donating. Okay, well, great to talk to you once again. Stay safe and we'll speak soon.
1: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Well, once again, I mean, really fascinating and dramatic stuff. The description of uh, him actually witnessing the knocking down of that jet, Patrick. I mean, it's really quite incredible, isn't it? Um, But he said a lot of things that kind of surprised me a little bit. And the fact that he's there on the ground, listening to people, you have to, uh, you know, give it a lot of credence. Uh, In particular, the point he made, uh, you know, we've been very optimistic about Ukraine, what it's planning and what it can do. But he's a little bit more worried, I suppose, or or he's a little bit more aware that Ukraine might be worried by the Russian advances than they're letting on, mainly because it's not giving them any breathing space to prepare their own counteroffensive.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, as he mentioned last week, the casualty picture is not quite as rosy as it's been presented in the West. And they're obviously feeling the pain. Um, So, yeah, I think we should uh, we shouldn't get too carried away uh, about what's actually happening on the battlefield now and the way it's going to go. I thought he was absolutely right to say that Putin is not at any point going to suddenly see reason and become open to to some kind of, you know, halfway house agreement. He's, his technique is just to double down and not to give in, really because he's got no other option.
0: Yeah, that's right. And of course, you know, the, the other thing is that he thinks that Russia is about to launch its offensive, possibly in the next couple of weeks. So, so we've really got to keep an eye on this, uh, haven't we, Patrick? What about the long term? Well, no early end to war without Putin's fall. But it was interesting that he kind of laid out the possibility. And after all, he's spent a lot of time in Russia, as we've already mentioned, that he would not rule out the hardliners toppling uh, Putin. If he doesn't get toppled, this war is going to go on for a fair while. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's it's interesting that, you know, he who's been in Moscow for years uh, still doesn't feel confident that uh, he can make any sort of predictions about what's going on inside that very tight circle around Putin. They've, they have managed to, to keep that very opaque and very secret. Okay, it's now time for listeners' questions. And the first one is from... Simon in Northumberland, who says, we've all been hearing a lot about tanks recently. I wonder if you could give us some historic examples of tank battles, or the tactical use of tanks in combined manoeuvres, and what to expect from them in battle. Well, I think the simplest thing to start off with is is what you know, Saul, about when tanks were first used uh, on the Western Front. I mean, that was quite a dramatic intervention and it really did change the face of warfare didn't
0: it? Yeah it's very interesting when they first uh, came into use in the First World War and a lot of people believe that their first use was in 1917 in Cambrai and that indeed was the first time they were used in any kind of mass sense Uh, but they were actually originally used at flair during the Battle of 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 the Somme and their arrival on the battlefield uh, caused incredible extraordinary effect on on the Germans, because they weren't expecting them, of course, and they were able to advance on the the trench lines with impunity, with the sort of bullets just bouncing off them and artillery bouncing off them. And therefore, they were able to make an extraordinary breakthrough. Uh, But the problem is, it couldn't be sustained. And this is the interesting thing about tanks is that, yes, they can give you a breakthrough in an offensive sense. uh, But you need to support them with infantry and ideally with air power and this principle still works today i mean we can think of course of the some of the huge tank battles patrick of the second world war el alamein where they were used in conjunction with both of those things particularly air power i mean one of the big game changers in the desert in 1942 alamein taking place in October and November 1942, was the use of tactical air power by the British. The Desert Air Force got used to operating in conjunction with armour and infantry. And that's exactly, I think, what the Ukrainians will be intending to do. And also what the Russians, of course, have tried to do and did do with a certain amount of success during the Second World War. Yes,
2: indeed. Um, now, there's a, Frederick here in Oslo, Norway, raises an interesting point. He says, with the delivery of Challenger Leopard and Abrams' tank to Ukraine, he often finds himself thinking about the German offensive uh, citadel in Kursk in World War Two. This is one of the great tank, the, the biggest tank battle ever, isn't isn't that right? Saul? I mean, a massive. It's like a sort of sea battle. These great fleets of German and Russian tanks slugging it out around Kursk. Now, the the Germans uh, were had very high hopes of their their new tanks there and it didn't quite work out like right. that. It was a great Russian victory. And so he asks, are we overestimating the impact these new tanks will have in Ukraine? And I think there has been cautionary notes sounded, haven't there, um, about the fact that there are three tanks with three different supply chains, three different maintenance regimes, three different operational sort of sets of skills needed to to make them effective um and i think that is a, that that is a concern isn't it i mean it, it's not ideal by any means I mean, it's better to have the tanks and not have have them but uh, it will uh, create sort of significant complicating factors on operating them Do you think that's going to be really a big issue in in the upcoming battles so
0: Uh, I I think the sort of supply chain could be an issue, but how effective are they going to be, in my view, very effective? And, And what's fascinating about this question about Citadel is there's recently been a very good book, in fact, coming out this year on Citadel, which completely overturns the old myth that the German panzer force, Hitler's panzer force, was basically destroyed at Kursk. And, you know, your point about they thought that the Tigers and the Panthers and these new tanks would be game changers. And actually, they were completely knocked out at Kursk. Not true, apparently. Uh, They lost about 50 tanks as opposed to 400, which has always been the myth. And actually, they were relatively impervious to Uh, enemy fire. It's just that they couldn't get the infantry and the other elements of support to make a big difference in this battle. And I suspect we're going to see something similar in Ukraine in that these tanks, the new main battle tanks, are very effective against enemy fire. Now the Russians are saying, well, if we if you apparently there's a company in Russia, Patrick, that's been offering cash if you knock out, if any Russians knock out some of these tanks. Well, good luck, because they've got very, very effective armor. And you know, I'm not saying that they're indestructible, but I think the Russians are going to be surprised at what they're up against. And the last point to make about tanks, because we banged on about them for long enough, is that they are very effective both offensively and defensively. So yes, it's going to take time for them to get into position. Uh, Yes, the Russian offensive may come before that, but at some stage, they can be used to both blunt an enemy attack, but also to lead in conjunction with air power, possibly drones, uh, but also infantry and attack themselves. So these tanks can and will be, in my view, very effective.
2: And it seems like the training program has got off to a very quick start. We've seen Ukrainian Troops arriving here in the UK already uh, to get down to business. So um, that part of the kind of preparation seems to be going pretty well. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for. Just a quick reminder to uh, send questions, as always, to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. Before we go, I just wanted to mention uh, that the uh, project that Julius referred to uh, to give psychological and, and physical casualties to the war the chance to retrain as uh, wilderness guides or at least enjoy the therapeutic benefits of a visit to his ranch seems to us to be a very worthwhile project. And if you'd like to help in any way, um, perhaps you could email him at Julius at wildbearlodge.ca. Well, we'll also put that, uh, that address up on the podcast description
0: Great stuff. So do come back next week when we'll be joined by Oli Lambert, the director of the wonderful BBC documentary Ukraine, The People's Fight, which is currently available on iPlayer. So do watch it if you get the chance. Goodbye.